And good morning. Time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. A couple of friends back into the studio from a previous show. And welcome back to Fuzzy Logic, uh, Professor Jeff Louie. Thank you. And Fiona Wood. Uh, Fiona. Oh, Wilkes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And now I've written. I've written you an academic paper, Jeff. I, this is a little surprise. I didn't ah. tell you this, and and I'm and I'm going to read it to you. And I want to submit it with you as supervisor to um, Nature magazine. All right. And here it goes. Uh, this morning, I was unconscious, but I woke up. Aha. Uh-huh. And I want to pull apart that statement a little bit, and 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 say, wh- what does it actually mean? So I was unconscious. This morning, because that's our theme for today's program. What, what, what would you? What would be your definition of consciousness? Yes, this is quite a difficult topic in terms of consciousness because it really hinges on what you define as consciousness level, and there are probably sub levels of the definition that help us in understanding it from a scientific viewpoint. Many people try to discuss consciousness as an overarching concept covering a lot of aspects of things such as awareness, vigilance, uh, wakefulness, all these sorts of aspects. But you, hint, you, you touched on it quite specifically when you said you are unconscious when you're sleeping and conscious when you're awake. And this is the question is, what is that boundary between the part of that? And that, that relates to part of that relates to wakefulness and, and sleep wake vigilance so it's the, the interesting idea is what how does something come into conscious awareness how do we how do we bring uh, sensations feelings thoughts into conscious awareness and that's what much of the scientific research around consciousness has been focused on well l- l- last week we we had a, a fantastic program with uh Charlie Lineweaver and Jochen Brocks and we got into trouble right at the very start, well at least I got into trouble because I asked them what is the definition of life and they're saying well there is no definition of life because it just kind of disappears when you get into it from a scientific level would you would you agree that we have this kind of problem when we're describing what or defining what consciousness is? Absolutely, I think that we have the same dilemma because in fact at least for us as, as a species, it, the two things are very closely related. It's part of our life as well, mm. and it's very important to us. And I think for us as scientists as well, it's very difficult to find one thing to pin down to study because when you're looking at consciousness, it can be such a big nebulous thing, but you can't really study that. So people then tend to find bits of it to study to work out how they work. So there are little little bits that we study, say, how do we bring things to conscious awareness? And there are some lovely ways that you can study that using brain imaging techniques. But all of these bits aren't don't really fit into... War, what's happening when I'm awake? What's what is consciousness? And there are so many other bits within that, which is, uh, David Chalmers calls the hard problem, which is well, okay, how do all of these stimuli that we're getting, how do these then become a subjective experience? How how am I feeling and seeing and thinking all of these things? And that's really the difficult problem. That that's where it gets really hairy, isn't it? Because mm. that's sort of like your internal state and what, what it feels like to be 
consciousness and, and, and how do you define that in scientific terms? And actually Charlie had a, an interesting way of uh, describing this and he said, you, you, you sound like this uh, is the, 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 Louis, the Louisiana problem. I don't know why he picked on people from Louisiana, <laughs> but he says, I know what it is when I see it. <laughs> but but there, is no, there is no hard definition. But uh, there, there are still things that I think, Fiona, you, you, you kind of break it down into, there are some facets of it that we can yep. put our finger on. And so what, what are some of those? The, my my favourite of them, I was doing some reading around and no one really agrees and there are a whole heap of different theories from different philosophers and neuroscientists and neurobiologists and as we were talking from Nobel Prize winners about what consciousness actually is. My favourite, I think, um, I was reading a paper by uh, Sabalescu, the quite famous philosopher who did a bit of work in Melbourne, I think, recently, but is in the UK. And he breaks it down to phenomenal consciousness which I think is probably from the root of the word of phenomena as in this consciousness there is something that it is like to be me I am happy or sad and therefore that I'm phenomenally conscious what, like in that a, way. Is it something like an emotional state or is it a bit more than that? Something that you can experience yeah exactly but which you can't quite you can tell someone about it but they can't experience it directly because it's your Experience. The philosophers call it qualia, but it's it, breaking these down bits down into what it is like to be me. What am I feeling? So yeah, emotion, but also from a much more nebulous philosophical point of view, is one aspect. And I think that particular one is is really quite interesting because obviously. I think I'm phenomenally conscious. I assume you are because I can see you reacting and you're smiling at the moment. So presumably there's something which it is like to be you, which is probably amused at the moment. And you may look at our dog and cat and when they're happy, you could say that they're phenomenally conscious. But then humans also have these other aspects of consciousness which are self-consciousness. So being aware that you have a self and an awareness of yourself in the world. And what we were talking about before with, ac you can call access consciousness, which is having things come to your attention now and being able to bring up memories and things from the past, they're being brought into your access consciousness. And then we all then tie this together with these feelings of sapience, which is all of these complex cognitive processes which are going on which are allowing me to attempt to explain consciousness and to put sentence, sentences together. So this really is a, a difficult area isn't it? Oh, by the way the grin that you just saw from me then the smile was my smartphone application generating through my prosthesis so it wasn't really oh. me. Well then there's another thing are then smartphones partially conscious? Oh yes well we're going to want to get, get into the future of consciousness if that's what it is towards the end of the program <laughs> and some interesting things like uh, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. Yeah. But um, I, I think you've also alluded to something there, Fiona, which is layering. There's a sort of a, a like a hierarchy going on in here. Mm. Would, you, would you say that there's, there's like a, uh, what, what's the term that you, they use, master? There was a, um, uh, the top level, the coordinator, there's a... Mm. Uh, I forget that I've lost, lost the word. It's not. It's gone from my consciousness. <laughs> yes, but it's like the master control program that sits over the top. It's the supervisor of a sort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm. yeah. And I think a lot of people do agree that that's probably 
And that even may have been how consciousness evolved, whether we know this or not, is that, yeah, there are different levels and it's of consciousness. Another way of looking at it is uh, Antonio Damasio, who wrote um, Descartes' Error, looks at consciousness as being these levels and with these hierarchies and saying that there's, pro there's a proto-self, which was probably the first of these layers of consciousness which involves representations of the world which is really gets in nicely to how we think the brain is involved with consciousness and thinks that that's probably related to the very early developing parts of the brain. So, th so these are like the primitive body functions, mm. like mm -hmm. I'm waving my arm around, the control in my hand in space. Is that, is that what you're referring to, that sort of thing? Exactly. Keeping yeah. my heart beating? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, yeah. moving moving to stimuli. There's food over there. Let's go towards foods. <laughs> that is food. That is not kind of conscious level, uh, as opposed to then on another layer on top of that is what Damasio calls core consciousness, which is the representations of self again, which require higher levels of brain power and uh, bits of the brain which develop later and these are the ones where we get into debates about whether or not other animals have it or whether it's something that humans have and then another layer on top of that is what uh, Damasio calls extended consciousness which is really this autobiographical sense of memory and future and yourself in the past and the future and extending that forwards. Like a, like a narrative exactly. of, of a sort. Yeah. yeah. And, and does that also encompass things like I'm Rod, I do fuzzy logic, and I'm handsome, and or whatever? <laughs> but but like uh, all of which are true. Uh, well, <laughs> some of which may be true. <laughs> but but there are attributes that I have uh, that I think of as being Rod, intrinsically Rod-related things. Is that are we at that sort of level here? I think that's probably a little bit lower down on the level in the core consciousness of self. But if you're thinking of Rod as planning to do something with fuzzy logic in the future, then you can extend that forwards. Because the extended consciousness really needs a coherent sense of time and of things happening. Whereas you can be Rod at one fixed moment in space, but if you have these higher levels and memory, then you can think of yourself as Rod continuing on and Rod having a past. Oh, yeah. Okay. And this comes into some of the the, the, the other types of studies and you and Fiona's articulated very well a lot of the very complex thinking and planning that people have been considering in relation to consciousness where people have looked at theoretical models and of how the brain is organized they've looked at models how people might sense themselves also these models where people have looked at philosophical aspects of what sensations are and the other so that's a sort of one way to characterize it is looking at from the, the from the top top down looking at what constitutes consciousness looking at the subcomponents of that and 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 trying to work out what are the subcomponents what what constitutes that and the sense of self. Another way is following, as, as on your previous program, is following the evolutionary angle. And we have to be careful not to get too teleological in this sense, saying that it, just because the thing is that, that there has to be a reason for it, but to look at this angle and see how organisms uh, first start to have motility. And that's thought to be the start of, of, of nervous systems. And that that we think that at least a component of our consciousness is related to our nervous system without getting into too much other sort of detail. And also the the gap between us in terms of our planning, uh, our, our ability to have these more complex levels of thinking, recursive thinking, that we can actually 
quite a lot of the research in cognitive psychology has looked at these ideas of orders of intentionality that I can think that you're thinking something because you're looking at me in a certain way and so these these are also ideas that were developed with the with the philosophers as well as well as cognitive psychology but this is part of consciousness as well uh, that, that's a fascinating area in fact I want to ask you about that but I, I want to we'll come to the evolution of um, I'm doing the finger waving quote yep. marks in the air here yeah. uh, being controlled by my semi-conscious uh, the lower consciousness parts of my body uh, but the evolution of what we call in consciousness we'll get into that later but I want to explore a bit more this idea of self and there's actually part of the brain, the, the motor neuron cortex, I think, or sorry if I got the right part of the brain, where I'm simulating your body condition Mi or your... Mirror, the mirror. Mirror, the mirror, mirror thank you, mirror the neurons. neurons. Yeah. Not motor, mirror, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I'm simulating, I have a mental model of you operating in my own mind. Is, is that... Yeah, can you, can you put that more clearly was, than I have? This was the sort of research that was done by Giacomo Rizzolatti, looking at models where they were actually... This was in primates. They had looking at chimpanzees, and they were looking at... The, what happened was in the study, they actually were, were studying chimpanzees with these electrodes with permission in, in these ethically approved studies and seeing where, where, they, where the neurons were firing when they were looking at food. And then they, they made the chance finding that when they saw a human reaching for a banana, it also fired the same circuits, so that, they, that there was a mirroring in the mind. And this seems to be something that is mostly thought to be related to our most close relatives in terms of the evolutionary tree, that is, the, 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 these primates, and that these mirror neurons can be a way of simulating uh, in, in, in the brain uh, movements and potentially modeling other components like emotions etc right. so if we were talking in the evolutionary terms this is a later adaptation of some sort this is the higher i'm reluctant to use the term higher evolved uh, species but or more recently developed mm, i guess that's the best way to put it yeah i, I can well remember an, in an incident when i was in uh, high school and i'm watching the sports carnival yes and one of my classmates and he's running across and he's going to do the thing called the Fosby flop. Yeah. I don't know if you heard that, but, but anyway, he's, he's jumping over the high, he's doing a high jump, mm. right? Yeah. And I'm watching him with, and I was really intent on, on observing him doing that. And as he approached the bar, guess what I did? I lifted my foot. Yeah. Mm. I, I found myself lifting my leg as if I was down there on the field doing the jump. That's right. With him. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was almost that was like my mirror neurons firing and and not being deactivated in some way. Yeah, and that's what we do when we converse with each other. We often people who who get on quite well with each other, we unconsciously mimic each other's behavior at a, and that that is part of the the motor circuitry in the mirror neuron and the links between the mirror neurons and the motor circuitry that doesn't need to actually reach our conscious awareness we often copy each other's body language in small subtle ways that's what you see when friends and particularly when people have intimate relationships you see that they often copy each other's movements in small subtle ways and that that is that is part of the the human experience and part of what They've talked about there's a there's quite a lot of researchers. One who summarised a guy called uh, Tom Sudendorf who works in the U UQ about the gap between us and some of the other species about how 
this difference level of of consciousness and and thinking in terms of the uh, these these ideas of 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 intentionality and also the the ability to time travel in your own mind and and tell the story and i think that there's a huge component of of human experience and consciousness is about telling ourselves a, a coherent story even though as uh, the older one gets the more you realize that you've edited your story <laughs> so, I'm, i'm i'm just uh, exchanging notes here with Fiona because i've just had a minor brain lapse but um do you, what what credence do you give to the idea think that um the evolution of our sense of self is an adaptation of this where it it originates as a social mechanism like you're saying we 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 mirror each other's language and and body position and and even attitudes i guess yeah and that that's the primary function and then it has been adapted to our internal state do do you think that our sense of self becomes applied to ourselves but its origin is is in modeling what somebody else is thinking do you think that's a, a useful that's actually one mm. of the theories that's one of the theories that they've considered as to why people have consciousness is the ability to work in larger groups and to to work together with other as they say in in biological circles conspecifics or to the rest of us humans <laughs> other humans is the ability to do things together that they thought the problem with a lot of the the and the criticism that a lot of the say that sometimes the the paleo anthropologists and the paleo biologists and the curators of natural history museums say when we talk about these things in psychological terms is they think that we're sometimes a bit trying to explain things after the fact so we say that we do these things and 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 we're explaining it after the fact but there is a fundamental difference in the way that humans socially organize compared to other species and that that's quite a quite a significant thing so we have we we think that there is a very significant po- component of our consciousness that relates to the need to understand your situation and then understand the situation of other people that you might be cooperating with or fighting against because that's the other thing that people do of course they compete and they fight against and often this competition was in groups so it's a very other. it's a very powerful tool to be able to model what's going on mm. in another person's head and it's probably the most unique thing that we have as a as a species is the ability to to perceive a future beyond even our temporal and spatial selves that we can plan you talked about you know you talked about yeah. the future just at the beginning of you know talking about the future for our species at the beginning there's not many species that we can find out scientifically that can consider that concept at all yes oh what what a fascinating this is such an amazing topic and i've got to say it's one of my most my favorite things to think about because this is really mind bending and we are on the edge of science here because we're talking philosophy to a lot and i think what you're saying here too um is that jeff that it's not a testable hypothesis a lot a lot of what we're talking about is not really scientifically testable in the with the sort of rigor that we want uh in science but we can work towards it if we break it down into these smaller bits mm. the tricky part is that the smaller bits like the research that we do in in our laboratories it only is a little bit of the picture and we move things in along incrementally so to a lay person it seems quite separated off or quite distant from the target 
but that's how science advances by little increments and sometimes by amazing discoveries of course but it's it's incremental but i think it is this interdisciplinary work that people are doing that philosophers are talking with scientists and that that uh, uh, human people in the human and social sciences are talking with with neurobiologists i yeah. think that this dialogue has to continue because i think it's something that has to be synthetic that people have to bring things together it's not something that we can just devote one stream of science to yes i i, I think i think that, that would be right because it's such a difficult problem that we can't just nail it down to hard science that it's something we need to talk about it's look i, th- I think we might break yeah. to a track and, and by before i do break the track a small confession from me here in the studio on uh, fuzzy logic is that uh, my attention is torn between lots of things going on mm-hmm. at one individual time i have enough buttons in front of me to fly a jumbo jet i've got a computer sitting here i've got stacks of cds i've got a complex topic with two very talented individuals uh, we're talking to today and i briefly could not remember Fiona's surname for a moment, but I really... Sorry, Fiona. <laughs> Fiona Wilkes, and a great pleasure to have you back here on Fuzzy Logic and Professor Jeff Louie. And listen to the words of this song, The Proclaimers, and he says, when I wake up... When I wake up? Yes, he does. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you And the proclaimers here on Fuzzy Logic 2XX. Uh, and I hope you're still conscious because you're going to need your full bottle consciousness to stick with us today because this is a really fascinating and a quite a difficult topic, I think. But we're privileged to have our two guests, uh, Professor Jeff Louie and Fiona Wilkes, <laughs> here to share their expertise on this topic. Now, were you listening to the track just there? Were you paying attention to it? Did you notice the timbre and the timing and the lyrics and so on? And I want to talk about attention because attention isn't strictly consciousness, but it's uh, it's related. There is there is a difference here, is there not? They're not quite the same thing. Or you, your consciousness, you pay attention. Well, what 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 is attention? Can we define attention? Even if we have trouble defining consciousness. Okay, well, geez, all right, I guess it's slightly easier uh, in that attention is something that my mind is focused on at the moment that I'm aware of, which is not necessarily consciousness in the more nebulous form, but attention and the conscious access to things is certainly something that people focus on with experiments more because you can... It's more tangible. It's much more tangible. It's vaguely measurable, although... There are arguments about, yeah, again, with the wonderful science psychology thing of all well, this correlation mean causation. Well, no. So while there may be, there are things that we can see when people are paying attention. We like to study it to see whether maybe those things are the things that are making us pay yeah. attention. So we can we can test things like decision making ability, for example. Is that an example of you can yeah. say? You can see if a person's paying attention because they take yeah. into account in yeah. their decision-making. Well, one metaphor that we might use that's a bit loose but useful is that you could be watching a stage play, and so your attention is like where the spotlight is on, 
and the rest of the things on stage are still visible because there's still lighting on the stage but your attention is that spotlight onto the situation. Hmm. Um, and uh, so by looking at this attention a lot of of the scientists are looking at what the brain is doing when we're paying attention and there are a number of different ways that we can do this uh, EEG electroencephalography is one of the ways that people look at which is by putting sensors on the head you can look at what the brain waves are doing and the brain waves change depending on our level of attention so there. An electrical signal so mm. it's not just self-reported or behavioral testing it's actually a a physical measure of some sort. Exactly, and there are different ways that we can look at what the brain is doing when people are paying attention. We're not yet at the stage, although there are some very clever people doing very clever engineering and neuroscience things. We're not quite at the stage where we can look at a brain, a person's brain, and go, right, they are thinking, or that they can see this picture. I think eventually with the way that the scans and the science are working you may be able to look at brain waves and see what someone's paying attention to at the time or we a general yet. idea a general or have a general idea, idea of what uh, and actually now I have to use this opportunity for a little uh, promo for an event we have coming up called <laughs> future cop right it's about the future of policing and forensics and so on and the reason I mentioned, apart from the fact that you should go onto our Facebook page, find the link and uh, register, because it's going to be a huge event, but uh, one of our guests on that panel is uh, Bruce McCabe, who we've had on before. And in his story, he's envisaging the not-too-distant future, and the police carry around with them a little device, a little handheld device. He calls it a, a HAMDA. It's a, an acronym, right? And it's a portable lie detector. And it's using, oh, I can't remember exactly what, voice signals, other cues and so on. Is the person lying or not? Mm. Now, the question of lying is, we're getting into philosophy again there, but that's an example, is it not, of, of, a, of a, some sort of, I, I don't think it's using uh, uh, EEG-type electrical measurements, mm. but it is, it is sensing your internal state through some sort of physical cues. There's a couple of comments that I'd like to make on that because in relation to sensing lies, we actually know about some of the cognitive psychology of people who, who tend to... Some people have certain types of personality problems where they lie a lot, people with what we used to call sociopathy, and they, they, they actually believe their lies. So detecting them may be a problem in terms of looking at electrophysiologic changes because they tend not to show a lot of electrophysiologic changes so that's one aspect and there, there are a lot of other things that not really in my territory but a lot of cultural and social and, and, and ethical issues that are related to, to that which I'm sure they would consider but some of them just in almost in an aside but it's an irrelevant aside they were mentioned in a Philip K. Dick short story called Minority Report which is all about predicting crime and if you have these pre-crime traces and you arrest people before they correct before they commit a crime is it a crime yes well i'm, I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> philip k dick because bruce mccabe's book is called skin job and yes. the term skin job comes from sure. philip k dick but a, a, as a neuroscientist would you feel uncomfortable then with the idea that a police officer might wave this thing under your in your face and say I'm going to test whether you're telling a lie or not. I'd have more objections in some senses knowing our traditions in Australia as a citizen. <laughs> I think that would be the issue about our, 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 our rights as a citizen. 
because people have their own personal thoughts and people think all sorts of things it doesn't mean that people act on these things many people have random thoughts that go through their mind and they're fleeting and they have no Im impact upon themselves or on other people but if you draw the line that you're going to try and detect what people are saying and other, other sorts of concepts, it becomes quite a scary, potentially Orwellian, mm. big brother type world. Because, you know, you don't have to go back as far as, as looking at some things, even in, in religious uh, background or philosophy, let him who has without sin cast the first stone. Because people do tell white lies to each other sometimes to protect people's feelings mm. well we, we do it all the time i believe yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, i'm not telling the truth there by the way <laughs> um so is then part of consciousness so somewhere from your unconscious an inappropriate thought emerges mm -hmm. and yet it goes through some kind of filtering process is, is this a higher order function of consciousness not necessarily we let go of it it's actually similar to the program we, we, I, we did with uh, Lauren Turner and Anya Tierney yesterday about obsessive compulsive disorder some people with obsessive compulsive disorder have these unbidden thoughts that make them very distressed and these are these random thoughts that we often have about uh, a classic example is someone who's walking uh, near someone who's sitting on the edge of a pier most people will have a flashing thought of pushing the person off the pier and most people don't do it so but people can become extremely distressed by that idea that they thought you know they would hurt, harm that person and that's when it becomes an obsessive compulsive disorder so these thoughts can have a sort of autonomous life of their own and so that that that's that that's what can happen that can become an obsession it can be a self-sustaining thought well, he, here I'm starting to wonder now about the border between mind and brain. And, uh, and Fiona, would you agree that's another difficult problem? Do you, do you see a, a distinction or uh, is mind an emergent property of the physical brain? I think that's what a lot of people these days have come to. They've come to that conclusion. And then the problem, though, is we don't know how the mind emerges from the brain getting back to consciousness again we still do these it's, it's similar to the consciousness problem but they call it this is more into the binding problem which is how all of these brain cells that are firing at all these times doing all of these things I can hear myself talking because I have headphones on I can see you I know that I'm moving my hands around as I talk because that's what I do but how how then do all of these these things are all represented in my mind but the problem really is we don't yet know how they all brought together into one coherent picture to be a mind and the mind representing itself a mind i think then goes back into consciousness again and this back to Damasio is talking about consciousness is actually requires both a mind which is he talks of as a flow of mental images and a sense of self. So consciousness, according to Damasio, is a mind with a self in it. Wow. I, I, I think this must be right on the edge of one of the most difficult questions, would be my guess. And do, do you think that the, the ant or the termite analogy kind of uh, is relevant here? You know, you've got lots of individual components, the ants, who really, neurologically speaking, are incredibly primitive. They have almost, you know, probably 
like a fraction of the brain cells that we have and yet they are able to exhibit very complex behavior mm. at, at the higher order and and almost a mind is like the colony level uh, ex exhibit of this is that do you think that's a uh, it's oh, a tricky it's a tricky one it's a tricky one because i think that with ants the thing is that they're all genetically related they come from the if in a, in a colony they all come from the same queen and so they're actually genetically so they've got very similar constructions of all and they also have differentiations for various tasks they're worker ants they're the the uh, the defensive ants. There's the the ones that assist. Well, you, the you, your neurons have specialization to some extent. Absolutely, well. mm. absolutely. And we're we're all human. All, all living organisms are are constellations of of cells put together. And even inside our cells, they're remnants of ancient bacteria that 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 help power us. All the mitochondria are some sort of ancient bacteria that were taken inside our cells. So we are colonies of of various parts and how is it coordinated that that is part of that real mystery how they are all coordinated we think we're piecing our way towards that and then atop that sits sits the the, the nervous system and, and the and the and the brain and ultimately uh, consciousness and and the sense of self but there's a lot of nestedness level. There's a whole series. A lot of the researchers talk about these sort of Russian dolls or the matryoshkas. That that yeah. there's a lot of recursiveness in in what what we experience. And uh, but there's also some sort of signalling going on even in the ant colony. There are pheromones and other little Absolutely. chemical trails. They live. I think we might give ourselves our brain a little rest. I think uh, and bring in some. Oh, uh, where will the children play? Uh, uh, classic cat stevens uh, on fuzzy logic and we're talking consciousness and my brain hurts i hope yours does too because it means you're thinking hard and uh, guests are professor jeff louis and fiona wilkes oh and where will the children play i don't know but uh where will the fuzzy logic go? Because we never know either. We're always living an exciting life here on 2XX, and we're talking to our guests, Professor Jeff Louis and Fiona Wilkes, on the subject of consciousness. Now, I'm playing a little game with our guests here, and I've just placed an object on the table in front of them. And, and uh, Jeff, just before you go any further, just hold it there. Can you describe what you see? I see a object that's covered in a cloth which actually has a lot of letters and words on it, it looks like definitions it's a tea towel yeah yep. tea towel yeah and then i i we in the break we were estimating that it might be a uh, might be a bust because we could feel it through the uh all right so this th th this is a little test of consciousness uh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh fiona so um you, what are the cues we have as to what this thing might be so we're discussing on Fuzzy Logic today consciousness and you've got all sorts of bits of information that you can process about this object mm. and we're going to reveal in a moment what it is. <laughs> okay, so off you go, take it, take it off. Uh, and it is, drum roll. Aha, <laughs> phrenology. Yes. Ah, phrenology. It's a phrenology bust, yes. A phrenology and bust. So can you describe their, uh, what, what you see on it, their lines and things on this little person's skull? Yes, and this is really <laughs> f 
from Franz Joseph Gall and uh, the idea of that uh, certain bumps on the head essentially represent certain functions in the in in the in the consciousness or the brain as they constituted at that time it's largely discredited but mm-hmm. some of our critics of the type of neuroscience that we do where we look at brain structure and function they they call us unmitigated phrenologists <laughs> because we we try to situate our thinking in 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 the brain but of course those of us who are, are physicians that's natural for us because we 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 work with people we respect people as people but of course we deal with the pe- pe- person as an embodied person uh, but you have evidence so yeah so some aspects of francis Gall's um science inverted commas were his ideas were valid in an, in a sense but it's it's always a yeah no, i agree with you i think there's 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 conceptually some similarity in the modular nature of the brain but even the modular thinking about the brain is somewhat controversial because it's actually networks that work within the brain we think that most of the brain consists of these sub sub networks that link to each other and that's how they evolved and that's certainly what what the science shows in 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 looking at evolutionary models of of brain function so if you we talked about cats and dogs and with due respect to cats and dogs they have different brain structures to humans and uh, so, uh, so it was it was perfectly legitimate for him to have this idea but what he lacked i think would you agree is the evidence yes whereas when you're doing brain imaging studies and you've got functional mri and structural eegs and those sorts of things mm-hmm. you're actually able to examine which parts of the brain light up in different mm-hmm. situations Yes, at least that's what we think we're seeing because it's part mm-hmm. of a network as well because things lighting up in one area is is one 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 aspect but it may be that other parts of the brain are actually down regulating as well so there may be reductions in activity in there and it's looking at the brain as you've talked about with consciousness as a complex system it's an interactive system that is constantly shifting and changing and that's what we think uh, occurs in the processing and 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 what we do as a component at least of consciousness how things shift in and out of awareness and how we even retrieve things that we think are quite substantial like memories they're in fact uh, the term that they use technically is an engram of 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 memories and that's actually it's an archetype of of the memory it's a it's almost like in a sense like a sort of active circuit diagram of where the bits of the memory were stored and then it's reconstructed that's our theory about memory so memory is our memories are not really like hard disks they're not like the, the computers that we have where something's written down and unless you destroy the hard disk you can't sort of get rid of it entirely our memories change each time we retrieve them that's what we know from the neuroscience and and, and uh, yes i remember getting really irritated by some training material that said your uh, your brain your memory is like a computer tape you know like a series of bits but it's your your memory is not a linear sequential thing like a computer tape, is it? No. I mean, it's 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 a pattern of associations, isn't it? Yes. As much as anything. Well, partly at one level, because what what uh, is do- what helps to coordinate it that is the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain, which is a grey matter body consisting of a lot of dense cell bodies, but has in immense amount of interconnections, which helps us coordinate and retrieve components of memory. It's also linked very closely to an emotional part of the brain called the amygdala, which tags emotional. 
sensations or, or thoughts or feelings to to memory so that the very strong feelings that we feel that are imbued with emotion can be tagged almost automatically and actually sometimes without passing through necessarily conscious awareness so that's what we think happens for people who are exposed to very traumatic events that they may get a fear response and they may have a bright a very bright vivid image of of what was going on or or sense of smell or whatever is related to that and that's stored in this sort of engram which comes back for these people with post-traumatic stress disorder to haunt them Mm. Yes, I had a friend who was a forward scout in uh, in Vietnam, and and he suffered from post-traumatic stress. Uh, it's, it's quite an unpleasant condition. So, are we more likely to remember things that have an emotional emotional content? Certainly, for autobiographical memory, that that is the case. We we have that. If you think about it, the the example that they always teach in 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 psychology 101, or or even in the psychology that people learn in medical school, is you never remember exactly when you learned how to say the word boat, yeah. and so all the a ty- certain types of our, our our knowledge are stored in ways that are not tied to events or em- emotion, and that is often the our understanding of certain aspects of the world, uh, mathematical skills, those sorts of things, and they're stored in a different type of memory. And that's considered one of the ways they label it is semantic memory. And the other type where it relates to ourselves in the interrelationship and the consciousness with other people is called episodic memory. And that is that part of that which contributes to our sense of self, that narrative that we have about ourselves. The the story. I can remember getting off the aeroplane at Changi Airport and one thing that really struck me as soon as it was the smell. Yep. And mm. I lived in Singapore as a child, mm. and it brought back all those childhood memories. Mm. So smell is really evocative in a way of bringing out... There's something really primal about the sense of smell and, and memory, is there not? Mm. And, yep, there's a reason for that too. And that relates to the idea that, in fact, quite a lot of our memory pathways are related to originally to olfaction if you look at the evolution of memory and sense of smell that actually comes through there's some animals and species that such as dogs and cats who have an extraordinary sense of smell and that is that is thought that some of the functions of memory were built upon that so that they could avoid danger and our sense of self, is, our sense of smell, is quite quite atrophic or quite vestigial compared to other animals. That, but it can invoke that. And in fact, the the in in the in the roof of your nasal cavity, where the where the olfactory sense smells are, that's one of the few places in the brain that has stem cells. And so they actually renewed from some of your brain cells are renewed from them there from your sense of smell. But also some of them, we think, migrate to other parts of the brain through this ol- olfactory wow. bulb. And there are other parts of the brain that contain stem-like cells as well. But that, that's how fundamental. And there are links between that part of the brain and the hippocampus, which is where you get these visceral sensations of, of smell these, and, 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 and also it can be tied to other things. So it's really primal. Very. Uh, some of my... Oh no, side but related note some of my honours research years ago was on using the sense of smell to teach honeybees and it's really very 
very strong even in honeybees you can teach them these associations which we did on a very basic level with the Pavlovian conditioning so you know Pavlov with his dogs and they would learn that the bell meant food mm -hmm. and eventually they would start to salivate before there was any food just with the bell and we would do a similar thing with honeybees which was just a wonderful year of my life but very bizarre in that we would knock out honeybees and strap them into little tubes so that we could then waft these smells in front of them and tie them to either a sugar drink reward or a salt drink aversive stimuli or kind of a punishment and so they would very 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 quickly learn that one particular smell meant reward and so they would poke out their um, proboscis, their little kind of tongues ah. for in anticipation of this sugar drink so you could put the smell and they would go right I know that there is food coming and stick out their proboscis whereas if you put the other smell which was the salt drink then they would stay still and they would not go anywhere near it and it only takes one or two times to teach them that this these associations which they can then keep for at least a day and this is in a honeybee wow isn't that wonderful that's it's a and how many brain cells would be in a honeybee? There's about a million. There's no really. I mean, it still sounds like a large number, but it's a tiny. But it's tiny the connectivity, thing. isn't it? So it's mm. a million times, a million yeah. squared, or whatever the the mathematics is. The number of possible combinations of of connections across those millions is actually a really big number, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah. And then and then we talk about these emergent properties and look at all the honeybees working together. And uh, people talk about the hive mind. But yeah. one of the things yeah. about honeybee behaviour is that they will in the hives when they decide it's time to move honeybees will go out looking for new places to move the hive and then once they've found the place that they want they can come back and communicate and then the whole the whole colony as one will move to this new place which yeah. is oh, a very similar analogy to some of the decision making and, and attention theories of human brains and things coming to attention is that this so is like swarming or something exactly yeah there's exactly. a swarm so there's this threshold yeah. level and once this threshold has reached then things just explode into being which is how people actually think about how sometimes things come into our conscious awareness in that sometimes there'll be things which I'm subconsciously aware of but it hasn't reached that threshold so I'm not mm it doesn't come into my full attention whereas if it reaches a threshold like with the honeybees moving somewhere once they once enough honeybees decide that they want to go somewhere then everything explodes so yeah. it's a it's a neural network it is, it is. At, yeah. a, at, at a macro level at the mm. individual bee That's level right. and across the colony yeah uh, isn't that amazing? Mind mm. singly or minds as one. That's mm. that's one way to look at it. And as as Fiona has said, that that is one of the theories about about consciousness level is that there has to be a certain amount of information or in in, in the sense in the physical sense electrical signals in synchrony to reach that level of consciousness so that we can a th a threshold a threshold so that we can bring it into a, 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 an arena where we can manipulate that information where we're consciously aware of it. And that's the advantage of consciousness is that you can manipulate that information because while it's in the subsystems, you can't really access it. It's similar to what we do, and this is a lot of the research that was done by Stanislaw 
De Hain and his group, who studied a lot of aspects of number, how we perceive number and language, but moved more recently into into consciousness. And uh, I think, he, he, as Fiona talked about, there were also studies that they did on on on, on uh, people who were in coma states as well. But coming back to this idea is is that that he he perceives of it. This is a very simplistic model, and we are we agree it's simplistic, but it's like a sort of. An, computational model is this sort of this workspace that we have in our, our that we can access the information once it reaches this sort of threshold all the things that we think and you you will feel them in some senses when they pro when they when they trigger into conscious awareness you, you might be sitting with someone and you think i'm getting a bad feeling like they're angry with me about it and you might be picking up like signals like in the body language sort. well that's probably your subconscious processing going on and then suddenly it's triggering into awareness like he's kind of looking annoyed with me and 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 what what am i going to do that, do next a, uh, we we we're going to run out of time because but there are f so many things that we haven't got to that i'm i'm really disappointed we're going to not be able to finish and and that's one and and i can remember having a, a difficult computer problem in fact how often do you get up in the morning and, and, and the solution becomes obvious. Mm. So something's happened in your subconscious levels, and so the sophisticated logical thinking isn't in, isn't exclusively in your higher consciousness. It's actually no. absolutely. It's actually deeper down. Especially the more skilled you become, because you automatize a lot of those routines using the sort of brain circuitry that we have. So it can carry out a lot of high order processing underneath uh, the conscious level. And 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 another topic which we you touched on there Fiona and, uh, and Jeff and that's uh, animals, other animals and so I'm not going to have time to explore this but uh, today's Ask Fuzzy column, a reader sent me a question says what do birds see? Now I've got an expert answer from the uh, Australian Museum on this one but th that's really just about the light receptors in their eye but the question that was implicit in what they asked me was what is a bird experiencing? which is a much more difficult, much more complicated problem. And also my dog Oscar, mm -hmm. who has this very finely tuned model that says when we're going out. He just knows, and he's got these little cues, I think, like I pick up the car keys, yeah. and, and, and his eyes are twitching, and he's just <laughs> watching, his eyebrows going up and down. Yeah. And he thinks, these bastards are going to go out and leave me alone tonight. But they read your body language and they can pick up pheromones from humans much better than because their sense of smell is much better. Pheromones, uh, yeah. he's got a really sophisticated little bit of processing going mm. on in his brain. And I, I think he has a sense of consciousness. You know, I think you said earlier, Jeff, you can see when he's happy, you can see when he's disappointed. And if I bang my hand on the table and I go, oh, swear word, deleted. <laughs> Uh, he comes in and he, and, he, and he looks at me and he goes, what's wrong? Yeah. So he has almost like a primitive sense of uh, that, myself. Absolutely, and that's what they think has happened with, with, with dogs and cats because they've, in a sense, co-evolved with us. Oh. They've become domesticated. I've, I've, got to, I've got to wind up. We, we're having just mm -hmm. far too much to, to fill in our, our show today, so we're going to have to come back and, and, and cover this one. A quick heads up to it. Don't forget our future COP panel, Saturday, 16th of August, 3 p.m. Go onto the Fuzzy Logic website to pick up the link. 
it's going to be an absolute riot and uh, lots of audience participation and love to get your uh, involvement there and some top flight guests including Bruce McKay we talked about earlier with his book the chief scientist from the Australian Federal Police the deputy director of the Institute of Criminology about the future of crime are we stuck with it forever Another Ask Fuzzy coming up for next week, maybe, if I get to write it. Uh, and Cap, the people who do the car, the vehicle safety um, measurement. I met them in Civic last week, and so what makes a car safe? Better go. Lots more coming up on Fuzzy Logic. Great to have you coming today. And thank you very much to our guests, Professor Jeff Louie and Fiona Wilkes. Better go. Catch you later.